The Everything Sequel Podcast is brought to you by Tua T Fitness and the Vegas Beer Guys. The Everything Sequel Podcast contains explicit language. You have been forewarned. Hello and welcome to the Everything Sequel Podcast. This is the Star Trek edition. Today we're talking Star Trek 3, The Search for Spock. <laughs> Underrated. Michael Schantz here of the How Dare You Awards. Joining me, of course, the man we need not search for, because he's always right here for us. Tom Stewart of Lonesome Whistle Productions. Say hello, Tom. I and if my grandmother had wheels, she'd be a wagon. <laughs> I have so much to say about that line. <laughs> First of all, it it is the, the, the this film is the beginning of a a, a It's not the beginning; it's the middle. It's the no, middle listen, of a trilogy. No, listen, listen. <laughs> The the remar- it's the beginning of a remarkable story arc for Scotty. <laughs> You're right. Pre- prior to this, he has been, you know, chief engineer par excellence. In this film, he transforms into king of the Luddite saboteurs. So I was going to say, the saboteur suddenly, du jour. Who's suddenly anti-scientific progress. <laughs> he hooks up with a horror in a couple of films' time. Yeah, and then and then in, and you know and then in the next generation he's at sea, at sea once again in the episode <laughs> Relics where yes. he turns up he turns up in the future and he's now outmoded in his thinking again. <laughs> so from this point onwards, that and the time travel in Star Trek Four, like <laughs> Scotty is never quite with the times from this point onwards. Yeah, he, uh, well, Star Trek Four, he's all about. Messing up the space-time continuum, he could give a fuck. <laughs> but also, you know, each of these movies has a has a device for examining the aging of the cast. Uh huh. Um, and this one, it's it's all about the Excelsior. Right. That is that is the that that is. But the, aside the from that, it's kind of, of set aside mortality. in this movie. Yeah. You know, right. it's different than say Star Trek Two or Star Trek Six. Yeah, it's not a theme in the same way. Yeah. In in this movie it's it's all tied to the threat of the Excelsior um kind of wiping them out. Mm-hmm. Wiping out their relevance. Oh, you got a fancy new warp drive, huh? Yeah. Whatever. Um and it's it's kind of it's it's fascinating in that in that respect. Yeah. Also the fact that, you know, they arrive back at Space Dark and they're told there will be no refit. Right, um, and the first thing we see in Star Trek: The Motion Picture is is the Enterprise being refitted. <laughs> exactly. So we've we've done a full three sixty on that. We're done. Mm. Yeah. In fact, you know it's funny because <laughs> unless some unfortunate accident should befall the Enterprise, <laughs> right? Because I mean we're already skipping ahead, but that scene where Scotty says, "No thanks, I want nothing to do with the Excelsior, please. I'll refit the." The Enterprise. It's a, it's a total departure for the character, as far as I can tell. It's mm-hmm. it, uh, he he's all, Scotty has always been the beacon of science and technology, and here he's sort of saying, you know, there are limits to this. 
mm-hmm. which is interesting because I'll stick with what I've got. Right, and it's interesting because I think he represents the philosophy of this movie towards science and scientific advancement That's more generally, which is fairly fairly negative, I'd say. Of all these films, well, this is because the one you also that have the least, that the least um, uh, is is the most negative about science being able to move us forward as a culture. Yeah, but one of the things that I do like about it is that this movie kind of posits through David not that the science was messed up, but that, that the individual was messed up, that he reached too far, that he wanted to go further faster. So he yeah. he, he made, you know, he made some shortcuts but with Genesis, but unfortunately he represents science. Yeah, right. <laughs> and and the the movie well we'll we'll, we'll talk about it later but yeah I, I I'll I'll say it now just to sort of set up my stall uh, upon watching this film for the I don't know how many time how manyth time um, <laughs> I realized you know upon analysis this is a Reaganite pro faith anti science film <laughs> and I hate learning that. <laughs> More than I've possibly ever hated realizing anything in my life. But it really is. <laughs> uh, well, we'll talk about it as we go along. Yeah, yeah. Because it's... I mean, we talk. We talked about this... All right, well, wait, let's reset. Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> as if you didn't know, we are talking like, like, about... <laughs> uh, like Captain Kirk's emotional crisis. Let's yes. reset. We're, we're talking about Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock... A 1984 film directed by Leonard Nimoy. Leonard Nimoy joins uh, the pantheon of uh, Star Trek directors by directing this in the next movie. And it's funny with him as a director because like Nicholas Meyer, I think of Leonard Nimoy as a completely competent, good director, but not, you know, it's like this, Star Trek IV, The Good Mother three men and a baby and funny about her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's pretty much it. You know, I at least feature for feature films. Right. So again, we're dealing with a, a director that has like a proven track record, at least within this franchise, mm-hmm. like Nicholas Meyer, but somebody who, you know, in three men and a baby, that was a, that was a breakaway hit. It really was. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's interesting. I mean, it, yeah, again, I think it's just quality over quantity. Mm hmm. But, um, yeah, the way he handles himself as a director in this movie, uh, I think, is magnificent. Me too. Because there is a, I mean... There's a, he makes there's... this movie interesting to look at. Well, I, I would say... In several scenes. Like, I mean... Oh, I mean, yeah. It, 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 he ticks He ticks all the boxes as, a, a you know, what I think of as a, a, a what I want from a director. Mm-hmm. But... I'd also say as an actor director. Yeah. He had his own kind of Kobayashi Maru here in that he's directing a film in which his character's name is in the title, but that he's not in much. <laughs> no, but that's it. His own co- his no-win scenario, his Kobayashi Maru yeah. is how do I not turn this into a vanity project? Right. And he turns that into a win-win scenario. Yeah. Because, you know, he chooses to um, 
remove himself from the movie until it's absolutely necessary. Right. And focus on everybody else in the cast. And like but you said him, in our ranking episode, like, he, you know, he does a lot for William Shatner in this movie. Yeah, and DeForest Kelly as well. Yeah. Yeah, when, you know, when the moment, when the opportunity arises to, you know, to put Spock on screen, he milks it for all it's worth. Sure. So he not only does he understand the role of director, he understands how to be an actor director, which I think. Well, is... and also not that, not just that, but he understands his character in the universe and specifically within this film. Yeah. So he, he knows, knows where to put him and how to use that character and you know what he needs from the character yeah and in, instead of recording uh an introduction to the final frontier can we just reverse everything we've said about <laughs> william shatner <laughs> we don't let's just <laughs> can you just play it backwards or like change change uh, change every other noun <laughs> and you'll have exactly the same answer right um, well, I think it's a remark. I mean, it, it never fails to amaze me, both in this and the next film, uh, how assured Nimoy's yeah. grip on this material is. It really is, and it and it it really shows. And I, I you know, I watched this movie for a second time in the last few days, mm -hmm. uh, and I mean, I could see it on the first viewing, but it really, it really struck me on the second viewing. Yeah like his imprint on the movie as a director. And it's funny because, you know, again, also in our ranking episode, we kind of talked about how one, three, and five in the series are thought of as kind of the bastard children. Yeah. But, you know, it doesn't it doesn't add up for this movie. It's got 79% on Rotten Tomatoes, which is only, I think, 3% less than Wrath of Khan. Uh, on a bud on a budget of seventeen million, an opening weekend of sixteen point six, and in the USA and the world seventy six point four. Hmm. People went and saw this movie. This movie was a legitimate hit. Yeah, and yet by the uh, by the end of this movie, even the director himself realized it was time to go somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Right, <laughs> that you needed to take the series in a different in direction. a different direction. So, but again, that's smart on his part. That's very smart on his part. Um, but it also speaks to some of the more questionable choices in terms of story and tone. Yeah, I think with this film, um, that that needed redressing by not not to say that they shouldn't have happened. You know, we we shouldn't have tried. But after we've done it, we need to do something different. Right. And well, and I think that was maybe one of the reasons I always. Again, we all we, we had talked before about sort of the popular culture, cultural mm -hmm. ideas of some of these movies and how they kind of infect your brain. And, yeah, you know, the fact that they're thought of as bad movies. And when you watch them, you think, but this isn't bad. No. But I think maybe wrapped up within specifically for Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock is where we really are dealing with all the aftermath of Star Trek Two: The Wrath of Khan. So we're still dealing with Genesis. We're dealing with the death of Spock and trying to find him again. And so maybe maybe wrapped up in that people wanted a whole new, fresh story and we're really yeah. 
you know, we've talked about this before. This is the middle part of a trilogy, a mini trilogy within the within right. the sequels themselves. And so if you remove that bias against the movie and just look on it look at it on its face this is a good fucking movie yeah absolutely no no um no question about it uh and it worked it, i mean it's it's solid yeah it's solidly executed it's plays it safe middle of the road in a way that is very satisfying and i mm-hmm. don't want to take away from that um I think we talked. Uh, we talked in if, the you know, the series that continue to make movies like this. I don't think you know. I I don't think it would be a huge problem. Uh, but when you see what they what they're capable of in terms of originality, sure. um, for the next few movies, you, you you do realize that that you know they could have worked a little bit harder on, right, uh, on um moving beyond the original blueprint of Wrath of Khan. Yeah. But that's not to say that, you know, maybe maybe it seemed like, uh, like a really good decision at the time because of the success of Wrath of Khan. Like well, and also... Like, this is what people want from Star Trek. What, why on earth should we not give it to them? Well, not just that, but, I mean, think uh, in terms of... I mean, we've been, we've been doing this a while now. Can you think of another series that that specifically kind of continues the story in a tr- like in the way that this series does. I mean all movies are connected to the previous movie or the original, right. but this is this is real specific. I'll go you one I'll go you one better. Star Trek didn't do this again right. for another like 10 years after the end of un- like I I guess Deep Space 9 which is 93 to 96 was the next time they attempted a serialized format. Right. <laughs> so this is unusual even for Star Trek. Yeah. And of course, you know, the original series doesn't have any um, serial connection between any of the episodes. They're all... Um, mm-hmm. uh, it's an episodic series. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's remarkable in terms of film sequels. It's remarkable in terms of the franchise. It's one of the most interesting pieces of storytelling in all of sequel cinema yeah i think so too and um because all three movies are very different from each other right but we are continuing with a single story among you know from the three and i think you can differentiate at least at least i think i can i can differentiate uh the idea of doing of, of continuing the story in a serial fashion from leaning too heavily on what we've already done. Because mm-hmm. I actually think, I, I don't have any, I think it's, it was a really good decision to continue the story in the manner they did. I just think they needed to, to find something that, that wasn't going as head-to-head with Wrath of Khan yeah. as it did. You know, there's certain points in the movie where I think, well, this... This is very reminiscent of a of the same sequence in Wrath of Khan at this right. exact point of the movie. You know they're trying to double down on everything they do in Wrath of Khan, and and even in a serialized format, you don't need to do that. It felt it always felt to me like uh, maybe in their minds they thought, uh, well, we're, we're back with the Klingons. 
and that's enough. Right. You know, so like you said, we're seeing sort of similar waypoints throughout the movie, same as Wrath of Khan, but they think because we're battling the Klingons that maybe that's yeah. enough to differentiate. And the Klingons feel tacked on. Yeah. In this film. Exactly. Um, and yet, historically... Christopher Lloyd. Well, historically, I mean, it is, you know, we've... So far in the film series, since the since the cinematic reinvention of the Klingons in design terms, mm -hmm. we've seen minutes of them so far. We've seen it's a few minutes in the beginning of the motion picture. Mm -hmm. So the entire modern day idea of the Klingons in the Star Trek franchise begins here. Begins with yeah, right. Begins with, with this movie. Lloyd. Yeah. So. In terms of the story, you always feel like the Klingons are, are you know, attacked on. You know, they're just a recognizable villain that we can sort of pin the film on. And yet, you, there's so much, there's talk of all the things that will be expanded upon in the next generation, Deep Space Nine, sure. honor, you know, death with honor, the look, mm -hmm. the, um, the military structure of the Klingon uh, bird of prey, cloaking. Cloaking, you, right. Cloaking, I mean, the cloaking law begins here and it never fucking ends. Um, and so, you know, it's it's really interesting. Like, it's narratively the weakest and yet mythologically. Some it looms large, right. In the whole yeah. franchise. Because without it, I don't think you have Worf. Yeah. Or, um, you know, uh, or Alexander. And maybe one of those two is a good thing, but... Uh... <laughs> I want at least one of those All Klingons right. in the world. <laughs> Guess which one? <laughs> well, now, let me ask you this. So mm. when we're dealing with watching the end of the last movie, <laughs> do we count that as a cold open? <laughs> For you, our impasse? You, uh, well, you've taken the words quite literally out of my mouth. Because uh, one, one of my first notes is, is that the titles quite literally fall over the final scene of the last film. Yeah. Uh, well, and then and, we go to the sky. But... Well, the only, the only other time I remember this is in Beneath the Planet of the Apes. Mm. Where the titles begin to fall. I think that is still original footage, though. In this like, movie? No, in, or in, in Beneath Apes. the Planet of the Apes. Yeah. I mean, it picks up at exact moment that... Charlton Heston sees the Statue of Liberty. Right. But I think everything from that point onwards is original footage. And um, But you also notice in this movie that Leonard Nimoy as the director, he still makes choices. The little blue box. Mm -hmm. You know? And so... Uh, well, he, yeah. He's so... going for like an artsy-fartsy revisit of what just happened as the box kind of expands and gets I, I bigger. I don't know if it's artsy-fartsy. I think, I mean, obviously, you know, we're we're recapping the ending of the last film. That's a, you know, an impasse. Tried but and true. I think it's, you know, I mentioned it in Wrath of Khan, and you, you'll get it in any film that's about television. We start with this tiny black and white rectangle on a big screen. Yeah. Which gradually expands to cinematic screen ratio, and color is gradually added. Sure. So what he's doing is, I guess it is artsy-fartsy, but he's narrating the jump from TV to silver screen. Yeah, right. Um, but it's odd because the the, the, the thing that's the, representing the TV was silver screen itself. Yeah. Like, I get but that I, the episode I, I guess, was 
originally television, like dealing with Khan, but yes, um, but it, it's it's again, I think it is just you know from film to, from film aesthetics to television aesthetics. Yeah, is the is the the kind of um, is the distinction being made here, and then we get a big chunk of the end of the last movie, including Leonard Nimoy's outro, which is now our intro. Yeah, um, you know, Rocky style. Yeah. Right. It's that it's that big a trunk. It's it's a rocky size chunk. <laughs> um, and so you know, right from the beginning, you're aware that that this is a, that this is the second part of a serial, like that the film sure. makes no attempt to hide that at all. Like from yeah, the, the movie's announcing this is what we're doing. We're on our yeah. way home. Um, we're in those clouds for a while. We are. Which we yes. knew. We knew we were going to be as soon as we saw those clouds. We're going to be here for a while. My note uh, is long cloud credits. <laughs> if there's, I mean, there's one that's the guarantee of all these movies. However they choose to display the titles, you will be there for a while. Right. Uh, and you're. Uh, it's interesting. We get it. You know, we see that Savick's been recast, even in the titles. Hey, what do you think of her? Robin Curtis? Yeah. She is good. I've seen her better than she is here. See, I thought so too. Um, She's actually very good. She plays a Romulan in an episode of Next Generation. She's actually... Uh, she's better suited to that than she is That's necessarily a Savick. And I guess I... You know, because I, I think I mentioned this in Wrath of Khan because the character... The character has way more to do in this movie than obviously Star Trek Four. Right. Where they didn't know what to do with her, so they just left her on Vulcan. But uh, no, I mean that's, I mean that's partially true. But the real reason they didn't, they did know what to do with her, but they cut it out. Well, I guess my, my understanding was they felt like kind of her story was done. No, they wanted to. So the original idea. I did. You want to talk about this now because it, it's more relevant to. Well, actually, the the moment happens in this film. So they they uh, they originally wrote a storyline in in which um, Savick has sex with Spock during his ponfar mm. while he's regrowing. While he you know during his his repuberty. Yeah. Uh, and so she has Spock's baby. She robs a little cradle. Oh, that I do remember reading that. Yeah. That she was pregnant. So that right. was where her story was supposed to go in Star Trek Four. So. Uh, but they they uh, they decided they didn't um, they didn't want to go in that direction. Eventually, so there were plans for Savick, but yeah. Um, but they at any rate, I remember you know I I was I think I was talking in the last episode about we were well we both were talking about Kirstie Alley and yeah um, I would have liked to have seen her like what she would have done like with this role and continued as Savick, but. She, I mean, definitely, you know, there's been a shift. She's, she's, she's much more of a kind of, uh, generic Vulcan yeah, type right. in this. And I don't know how much of that is the performance and how much is the writing. I imagine both. That's the thing, because I kept thinking about Star Trek Two, and I kept thinking about, like, Kirstie Alley felt very Vulcan to me, but I also liked this idea of her questioning the captain about, yeah. about the Kobayashi Maru and and what's fair mm -hmm. and like. I, you know, and that, that to me shows emotion and that to me was interesting. So I, I, you know, that wrapped like that kind of idea wrapped up in 
what she's doing here would have been interesting. But again, like, is it written in there or what, what, you know, was Kirstie Alley bringing that much to it or so? Well, the more, the more interesting kind of play and kind of pseudo recasting of this is in Star Trek six. Yeah. With the right. uh, Valeris, with Kim Cattrall, with Kim Cattrall, and that 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 speaks more to to doing something interesting with the Savic mm-hmm. role than than uh, was done with her when Robin Curtis took over for these two films. I yeah. think. All right. Um, which which is not to I mean you know perfectly solid performance. Um, we're gonna get Judith Anderson at some point as well. Yeah, which is a very big name. And the, the movie's kind of putting it out there at the beginning. So <laughs> recasting and celebrity cameos. And we are familiar with these concepts when it comes to sequels. Are we not? Uh, yes. Um, I really, It's really interesting that the film starts with the captain's personal log. This may be the first time we've done this. Right. Rather than the uh, official log. Um, and it suggests to me that, you know, that we're more interested in the emotional arcs of our characters than necessarily their plot function They're, right at this point maybe i mean maybe that's that's too much of an assumption but i think that's that's where we're going i mean it's also great it's a great exposition dump right it's mm-hmm. we know exactly we know everything we need to know from this log enterprise is returning from genesis we're picking up where we left off everything that's happened in between is covered in this log so uh but it's also it's also you know Kirk's self reflection, yeah, um, and he's kind of verbalizing not just how he's feeling but also where Spock stands in relation to him as a character. He calls him the noblest part of myself, yeah, um, which is something we've always kind of known. I don't know where we've ever pinned it down this this definitively before. Mm-hmm. That's what we always. Spock is, is the logical side of Kirk. Um, well, and you get a real, I mean, you kind of, once, you know, once Sarek shows up, you kind of get a, an even, I like that you get a kind of deeper understanding of of Spock and, and Kirk and, mm. and exactly how deep that friendship is. You know, because right. Sarek can't, believe that it would be anybody other than Kirk who got the yeah. mind dump. <laughs> well, it's also, it's also a really, it's like a, a, a very sort of gripping way to do exposition. Right? Yeah. Because he comes in and he shouts at Kirk and he's saying, how could you do this? How could you leave him there? And again, once again, you know, we're restacking everything. Yeah. But it doesn't feel like restacking because it's in the middle of, a, you know, a heated dramatic scene that yeah. played well between two actors. And I think I think he's so good in that scene. Mark Leonard. Yeah. Mark Leonard. Well, I mean, he you know, he is he he's an actor with whom Star, without whom Star Trek would not exist. Mm-hmm. He's a he's played a Klingon, a Vulcan and a Romulan. Wow. He was in Balance of Terror, which is frequently cited as one of the best episodes of Star Trek of all time. Uh, he's in the motion picture and, you know, he plays Sarek in uh, the original series in these films and also in The Next Generation. Yeah. So he he is the Star Trek repertory company, basically. Right, right, right. Um, it's... I love that scene between him and Kirk, though. 
I love. Well, I we love... haven't. Se- the other great thing about it, I mean, the other amazing thing about it, you know, for for a fan, you haven't seen Sarek since Journey to Babel. He's only in one episode of the original series. Hmm. So for him to turn up like this, I mean, turn up like that, I mean, in, you know, in retrospect, you're used to him popping up uh, in in various Star Trek right. um, uh, um, shows and films, but when it happens here, it's a it's a huge deal. You know the the that this this callback to this again it speaks to how these are double sequels yeah right um we're really not i we're really in 1984 we're really not expecting to see sarah ever again mm-hmm. um the other great i mean basically what, what i'm what i'm trying to say what i'm kind of groping at saying is this movie does exposition extremely well extremely well you're right yeah it doesn't it doesn't ever feel like a um overdone or clunky it's always delivered dramatically, and I'm, 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 you know, the the screenplay deserves credit, but also Nimoy deserves credit. Yeah, because he did a great job of shielding quite how much exposition is in that first third of the movie. Right. Even when you know that check in with the crew that we get, we're just like we're yeah. seeing we're seeing who came back basically, mm-hmm. and we also we're, we're checking in on the ship. You know. It's like what what's we're looking at emotional damage and physical damage. Yes, right. Um, and uh, it's hand you know it's just handled in a really interesting way. Although I think it's amazing. This is the third film in a row where Kirk begins in the middle of an emotional crisis. <laughs> like his character development is also his biggest reset as a character. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> um, like you know, the, even at the beginning of the motion picture, you know he's he's sort of making a play to get the Enterprise back. Yeah, right. Um, not that the movie knows how to represent <laughs> that in words, but we, we know, right? In acting, we got to look fig- at space for a good twenty yeah. minutes. In two and a half hours, we figure out that was what was uh, going on. Um, That's funny. also in this. I mean, one of many examples I have, but. Of, of Nimoy directing Shatner well and the two of them working together to, to create something really beautiful. Um, just, they they both understand how to play grief. Mm-hmm. So you have that, um, one of the, I mean, this, this movie is full of amazing Kirk moments. Kirk, Kirk character and yeah. Shatner acting moments. Uh, but the first one, I think, is when he collapses in the turbo lift after he's put a brave face on for the crew. Right. I mean, you know, it's a beautiful piece of acting, but Shatner and Nimoy both understand it's like grief isn't permanent. It comes in waves. Yes. And, and you know, you have to perform. It can literally knock you on your ass, and that's what happens. And also, and I don't know if, I mean, maybe I'm underestimating what happened in Wrath of Khan, but what I really got from Nimoy directing Shatner here is you can see where Kirk is playing a role and you can see where the true Kirk mm-hmm. is coming out. Like they they both seem in this movie in particular attuned to that. You know exactly when he's he's you know he's being deceptive. Not yeah. in, not in a way not that it, it spoils anything. It's that it's beautiful. It's just you 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 know um you know, you can you can tell the difference between the you know the performative Shatner and the the the, char- the, and the character the character of yeah. Kirk. 
uh, and it's just a great use of, of an actor like Shatner and, you know, that range he has to do both. That's uh, fantastic. It really struck, I mean, it really struck me just breaking it down so many individual moments like that throughout it. But this is the first one I, I really noticed. I thought it's just, it's just lovely. Well, and we'll have more to come. Why don't we, uh, we've, we've got a good start here. Why, why don't we take a break and we'll come back. Yeah, come back with the Klingons. Yes, sir. They got some blowing up to do. (laughs) All right, ladies and gentlemen, we'll be right back. Does the coronavirus have you feeling oogie? Have you been sitting on your couch for weeks? Nay, have you been sitting on there for months? Well, it's time for you to get back in shape. Check out 2 a T Fitness. You can find them on Instagram. You can find them on Facebook. 2 a T Fitness was started by Tina Bernard. She is ready and raring to go to help you get back into the shape you want to get into. They've got all kinds of classes. They've got outdoor in-person classes. They've got online classes if that's what you prefer. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time to get back in shape. You're going to find a variety of exercises. You're going to have strength training, cardio, weightlifting, even fun five-minute burnouts that will push you to your limits. So get off the couch, get into shape. Go ahead and check out Tua T Fitness. Tina Bernard has got you for all your needs. I know her personally. She's fantastic. You're not going to meet a better person to help you become the new you. Check it out. All right, we're back, ladies and gentlemen. Tom and I are here discussing the underappreciated Star Trek III, The Search for Spock. A 1984 film directed by Leonard Nimoy. Well, like you said, on our way out to commercial, Tom, we uh, now now let's let's get uh, the let's get the Klingons involved. Right. And they they are up to Klingon kind of shenanigans, aren't they? Yeah. Did did you? I mean, the uh, first of first of all, when you see the the model of the Klingon bird of prey, I thought there was a real improvement in. Yeah, it looks good. And effects. Yeah. And that's ILM, I think. Mm-hmm. And that's discernible from the last film. And not to mention, you know, I mean, we've already spoken to it, but cloaking. This is the beginning. <laughs> Star Trek will So I'm starting to sense that you're not a fan. No, I I, I have no objection to it. It's okay. just, like, like as, you know, as I said in the ranking episode, I've been, watch, I've been trying to watch the entirety <laughs> of the classic... Star Trek TV series, and there's a lot of talk about cloaking. Interestingly <laughs> enough, there's also a lot of talk about Targs. Oh, really? Uh, which is the the animatronic pet that yeah. I believe we only see here, and yet people you hear it referred back to um, numerous times. What do you think of that puppet? Great. It's a lot of I fun. It, it is a lot. It is a lot of fun, and I think you know it's part of where. We elevate Star Trek to the cinematic, you know, with the, mm-hmm. with an emphasis on creature design. Later on in the film, you've got the the microbe shrimp, 
Um, yeah, right. Which is like you know, and which keeps growing as the film goes on. So essentially, yeah. <laughs> you're working on three different scales of of model creatures, and it's kind of quite impressive, I think. But the puppet, I mean, it looks like it could be straight out of something from The Dark Crystal. Looks exactly, super cool. Yeah. yeah. Um. So so yeah, that that you know, they appear. Christopher Lloyd, you'll be remembered with honor. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's all in the in the wheelhouse. But but this is the first time you're hearing any of it, really. Right. So you're you're hearing it for the first time, and this is also the first time you're hearing uh, the want is Genesis. And so maybe maybe mm. maybe that's something that this movie suffers from in in the yeah. sense of two villains in a row want the same thing, and they're different like you know yes. different species, different you know whatever. Yeah. Uh, but they want the same thing. Exactly. Yeah. No, I I agree. I think I think that is that is they could have, they could have had a di- as you say a different want for the for for Krug. Yeah. Um. But I love you know. I love the choice of Christopher Lloyd because at this time. You know, you loved, Christopher Lloyd. We're not to Back to the Future yet. No, we're so, Taxi. So yeah, if, if you loved Christopher Lloyd, you loved him because of Taxi. Yeah. And to see him uh, de-jimify himself mm-hmm. uh, is a real treat to me. And he's got so many just choice, great moments. Yeah. And again, we talked about Nimoy helping out Shatner. He mm-hmm. does the same here. These these moments of extreme close-up when he's yeah. almost whispering into his subordinate's ears. And Yeah, and... It I to think... me it elevates the i you know we're talking about this idea of uh, the same want as the last film and maybe that lessens mm. it a little bit, but but Lloyd is a good great enough actor that y- you understand it, I think at you, least yeah I, I I think I think he's he's playing the character really well and building you know the 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 t- Klingon type. Mm-hmm in a really interesting new way. And that's all kind of, of happening. I, the problem, as you've identified, is that we're... Well, what I like pop- is he's also not just a brute. It's not just... No. A bat, I mean, like, he's so... He plays it so... He plays the character so smart. There's... I mean, I don't know whether this is a... a he's a outwitting problem. Kirk in moments in this I don't know whether this, this is a problem or a nuance, but I, the, the Klingons come off slightly better than Kirk in the... Denouement of this movie, right? Um, I suspect, given you know, you know what Nemo's is doing as a director and what this what this screenplay is capable of, it might not be an accident, but it is mm-hmm. it is strange. Um, they 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 seem they seem to have an an honor system that Kirk cannot comprehend. You know he can't. He, I I don't know if it's a mis- I don't know if it's a mistake or, but but something. You know that there's definitely more to these Klingons. Yeah. Over the course of the movie, uh, than you might expect, given that they they you know they were the sort of stock villains of the series for sure. so long, and you know every time they they needed a ho- a villain hole to plug, they put a Klingon in there. Right. Right. Um. So, well, after that we go back to space dock. And of course, that means everything slows down a little bit, but right. we don't indulge it like in the motion picture. Can I ask you a question, though? Yeah. Uh, what do you get? Because one of my notes is 
No time has passed, but a lot of time has passed. In the sense of, you know, in this movie, it seems like it took them a long time to get home, but then they get mm. back to Genesis very quickly. Right, yeah. You know, and and yet it doesn't seem like they've been gone long enough for Excelsior to get built, but that mm. is what happened. Yeah. So there seems I mean, to be like, yeah, it seems as though the movie's trying to have the two years that it, between the actual films, 82 and 84. Yeah. And also the the time within the constraints of, of the narrative itself simultaneously at the same time. Agreed. I think that that's definitely true. And in that way, it reminds me of, uh, again, Beneath the Planet of the Apes and yeah. Escape from the Planet of the Apes. You, you know, you have to believe that uh, Zero and Cornelius, you know, said goodbye to... Right. Right. Said, said goodbye to Brent and went off and built a time machine. Yeah, um, just in so case. It's, it's, <laughs> it's a similar here, uh, but I think you know, like like everything in this movie, it's smoothed over to the point where you don't really mind. Right. Uh, yeah, I'll agree can, with that. You can accept it. Um, uh, but we got I, you I know where we you know not just the audience, but Kirk is finally learning that. Uh, you know, it's McCoy. Yeah. That got mind melded with, with Spock. Uh, we talked in the last episode, of course, we're going to see the last movie on screen. Mm -hmm. Uh, we're going to enhance and rewind and fast forward on it and do all that good fun stuff. Yeah. The, the, it's, it's like no, no amount of Blade Runner is going to, right. Is going <laughs> to, is going to disguise the fact that this is this is Imbas upon Imbas. Right. <laughs> a recap of video footage from the previous film that was already video footage in the previous film. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and we've already seen at the beginning of the film. Right. Um, yeah, and this is another great great moment where actor and director come together to make something something truly special. The scene in Spock's quarters with uh, mm -hmm. with DeForest Kelly. Really good. I mean. You know, he he just he appears out. He appears out of the shadows. You know, in DeForest Kelly in full bug-eyed force. Yeah. So between the lighting and the performance, it, it's it's a truly startling moment. <laughs> um, but not just for the audience, for Kirk as well. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Uh, and he, you know, again, this is our first payoff of the. This is actually the first payoff of the mind meld foreshadowing at the end of the previous movie. Right. So. Well, because the first thing we hear actually upon Kirk entering Spock's quarters is Spock's voice. Right. Oh yeah, no, that that you know, at this point we don't know how Spock's gonna come back to life. Mm -hmm. Like we don't know by you know the the previous like you said at the end of Wrath of Khan they give you lots of different options about how. Spock could mm -hmm. survive death. And because we've not decided, we can play around a little bit and we can do these fake-outs yeah. where it's like, well, maybe he'll just turn up in his quarters Right, again. right. <laughs> maybe he was there all along. He maybe might be... Spock, he might. He, it was Spock to the power of two. He I might force-ghost this shit. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, I mean, that's, a, that's just a, a tremendous scene. And then we get all the sort of there will be no refit... Yeah. Uh, the the enterprise is 20 years old. Uh Genesis is now a galactic controversy. So, you know, we 
I like that this... scene though with his commander when when Kirk's trying to convince him to let him go back. Yeah, we we're we're not quite in retcon territory, but we're changing our perspective right. on everything we know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so Genesis is no longer the the future of mankind. It's the the end of man the end of mankind. Right. Um, which you know, and sequels have the right to do. Right. We've seen this before. Sure. You right. Can, right. You right. 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 Change your perspective on a key plot issue, and this is what. I actually think it's done pretty well. I was going to say, I think it's actually pretty interesting. Um, but, you know, the 20-year-old's comment is, again, that's like the idea of this new, this this um, shit-hot new ship and crew. Yeah. Take, you know, taking the place of the Enterprise is how we, we deal with this idea of our, of our characters mm-hmm. fading from maturity um, into seniority (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, and then we you know again we have another like we're developing these parallel storylines we've got the we go to the USS Grissom it's like another new captain and another new crew every new every new film introduces us to a new ship just to be blown up minutes later just to be blown up minutes (laughs) later Uh, we're back with David and Savick um, and they do again. I think they do a really good job reestablishing the backstory, yeah, their right. character dynamics, which is especially important because you have a brand new actor in there. Yeah, right. So it's like, how is this relationship going to work mm-hmm. um, now that it's a new actor? Uh, but the one thing you you know, it's interesting because the one thing that allows is for them to develop sort of on their own. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I, I never have the sense that I have to remember the Savic from Wrath of Khan. Yeah. Well, I think, and I think a lot of that just has to do with the fact that we have a new actor. But yeah, I think I think that's it. I think it it's just gives you an opportunity to sort of start again. Yeah. Um, as if it's a brand new character. Yeah, right. Uh, so they're kind of playing. They're playing both sides of that. Um, uh yeah, so we have a lot of cross-cutting, and when we, we go Yeah, back I mean, to... we're going to get to Forrest Kelly in the bar, and... Yeah, we're gonna get... we get to see the, the catwalk of casual wear that the crew will be wearing for the next two movies, when they yes. have a little reception in Kirk's apartment. This is interesting, the fact that Kirk's apartment is the same as in the last movie. I uh, I tell... noted that as well, yeah. And that tells us we're not going to do another design overhaul of the franchise like we did in Wrath of Khan. Right. This is the same universe, this is the same timeline... Um, and I think I spoke to that in our ranking episode about that kind of continuity between these three movies. Yeah, really, you know, it really it really stood out to me on the on the the, the viewing for the for the podcast. Oh yeah, it's 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 huge. Um, we get a mind meld, which is is fascinating both because it's already a classic Star Trek staple. Sure, uh, but. You know, this is not the first star fleet captain that Sarek will mind meld with. He later does it to Picard. Right. Um, so it's. But again, point. like I think that Leonard Nimoy really brings something to that scene. Yeah, I, and it, you almost forget that you're just quoting dialogue from the last from movie. the last movie exactly. <laughs> because because that's he exactly makes what it so interesting to watch as a director. Right. I mean, he's fi- he's finding interesting ways to sort of recap footage, yeah, <laughs> and you know, and for us to 
to sort of keep raking over the same ground. Uh, I'd rather we we weren't. I mean, it's just, you know, we keep going back to Wrath of Khan for our content. Yeah. And I think that's the, we, you know, we keep having to go back to the well. And I think that's the problem, not that the movie's not, the screenplay. But how do you solve a problem ways. like that when the characters, the characters actually need it? Not that the, you know, it's not even just the audience needs it. It's, it's that Sarek needs it. He needs to know what Spock mm. did. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a, this is kind of a retcon really, isn't it? Like nobody knew that Spock's brain was in, you know, that, that, right. that Vulcans could survive death before this. I mean, it's never come up. So we're inventing an, a, a new story problem. Yeah. Right. Right. Cause we want to we'll... keep Leonard Nimoy. Because we want to keep... Yeah, exactly. Um, the other... I mean, there's that great scene between Kirk and the Admiral where, mm-hmm. you know, he says, I, I never understood this Vulcan mysticism. Yeah. And and it goes back to this, you know, essential contradiction of the Vulcans. They're both faith and science at the same time. And it's really hard to... Right. Like, their tradition is is one of mysticism, but their, their present day uh, is all about um, empiricism. And this is something that the series has never resolved. <laughs> and it's interesting that they make it into, you know, they put it in the words of this animal. Of a character, sounds like right. exactly what Roddenberry used to say. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I think, and given that they, they stop him, you know, the Admiral is the first guy who's stopping them having any fun. I think he's meant to be a, a Roddenberry ringer. That's funny. In, <laughs> in this. <laughs> But it's also, I mean, it's also the first hint we're getting of the oppressive nature of Starfleet and the Federation. Right. Which becomes a theme in the next few movies. It's the sense that it is not this utopian uh, organization. But you got to have some of that, right? So that Kirk yeah. can be the rule breaker that he is. But this is the first time. I know, No, it's essential. But this is the first time we've kind of played that. Yeah. Um, in, I think... When it happens in the original series, it's very much Bad Admiral or Badmiral, as I like to call them, (laughs) Um, is to blame. Like an irresponsible admiral admiral make them do something. Mm -hmm. But here, you know, the admirals are all being leaned on by the council. You know, it's sort of like it's it's the hierarchy that is that is of Starfleet that is making it difficult for people to take individual action. Interesting. Um, the other great thing about this scene, this is probably my favorite acting moment and directing moment of the film, um, where just at the point at which Kirk decides he's going to steal the Enterprise and pretend to the Admiral that that uh, he's not going to go to Genesis, Nimoy zooms in yeah. for a second yeah. on face just as he's making the decision, and he catches the moment that... Um, that Kirk, that Shatner playing Kirk, is, expresses is, that he's decided is bullshitting. Yeah, he makes his decision, yeah. and then, then you know that, and the rest of the scene is him bullshitting. Yeah. So it's again, it's that it's it's actor and director working working together. in concert in a way that's like really satisfying too, enhancing each other's work. Yeah. Um, rather than detract, you know, and you know, I, I've I've ranted before about directors getting in the way of actors. Yeah. This is the opposite. This is what it looks like when, when actor, it's done well. When a director supports their actor. Right. And actually, more than that, it's not simply about sitting there and observing it. It's about, like, what can I do cinematically 
to show the audience what Shatner is doing. Right, right. And he does it with this this very subtle, quick, yeah, subtle zoom, zoom in, zoom out. Like it's 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 you blink and you'll miss it. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's telling you know it's like before he even reveals it to the crew, you know exactly. You know exactly what what Shatner's gonna do. Of course, you know exactly what he's gonna do. Um, The star bar. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's so interesting. It's so interesting to me. Um, Complete with some sort of video game that looks like Snoopy battling the Red Baron, but a hologram, right? Which means in it's hologram the form. Yeah, <laughs> but in in some ways it's leaning into Star Trek's past. You have a Tribble there from the episode "The Trouble with Tribbles." Mm-hmm. Um, but in other ways, I think this is this is each of these movies. Uh, be- when I think when Star Trek the Motion Picture came out, it 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 was trying to emulate the success of Star Wars. Right? That's yeah. Very clear. Right. It was trying to trying to take something that worked in Star Wars and apply it to the Star Trek universe. And in the Motion Picture, they were doing it with scale and spectacle, which didn't work. Mm-hmm. They couldn't match it. In uh, Star Trek Two, it's dirty space. Yeah. Taking that element of Star Wars and running with it very successfully. And here it's sort of like this. This movie's version of it is: let's have a weird alien parade in a bar. Yeah, let's have a cantina. <laughs> let's have a cantina because right. it is so cantina. It is. And I would uh, the holograms. I would argue a Star Wars holiday special. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's this weird mix of like of of star of like Star Trek legacy. Yeah, my biggest and, and Star Wars. Pandering. Yeah, it's looking the, back the... over my notes, my 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 biggest complaint throughout it is I kept saying things like this is this is oddly comic. Like all the comedy was... they're going for is a little strange. When I was young, this was the most confusing scene really <laughs> I had ever encountered. And that, and and I you know, I break it down now as a as a as an adult and I know exactly why. Because you've got you've got um, DeForest Kelly playing two different people, people, right? Having a conversation with a character who speaks in broken English. Yeah. Because of course I was confused. <laughs> of course I didn't know what was going on. Also, you know, do you they think need to... that that character, by the way, because it seems like they were kind of going for a Yoda thing. Yeah, yeah. In in, in Cadence, pattern of but, speech, and but he looks like the Devil Man from the Cantina. From the Cantina, exactly. Um. And, you know, with this, it's like, they just, you don't need any, you could just cut to the chase, right? Right. Here's, it's like, I need a ship. I have a ship. I need to take it to Genesis. I'm not taking you to Genesis. I'm going to try and, I'm going to Vulcan death grip you. It also kind of, that's it. Right. That's, but the movie thinks you're going to be interested in looking around the bar and all the funny aliens. And you're kind of not. It also feels like, it also, it feels like they're trying to retrofit a Star Wars cantina scene in there, but it also yeah. feels like they're padding the movie a little bit because you could have broken McCoy out of sick bay as opposed yeah. to jail. Oh, that's what I, that's what I mean. There's one, there's, there's sort of one outcome to this scene that you need to get. Yeah. Right. Which is that he gets taken into custody and there's, there's a way of doing that, which cuts to the chase much quicker. Right. And isn't isn't confusing and distracting in the way that this <laughs> right. that this scene is. That said, my again, one of my favorite 
DeForest Kelly moments as as McCoy when he attempts a Vulcan death grip. It's really funny. Just how mu- how much he how hard he's trying to do it unsuccessfully. I mean, this is what one of the best performances of one of the greatest characters, certainly in TV, but yeah. maybe, maybe even in film as well. Um, after this, we we get to something which I don't think you like as much as I do. I put here beautiful mat work on the snow cactuses. But so I, I, okay, I I've had a bit of a okay an, good. I've had a bit of an evolution. The, when I re- but I was willing to I was willing to support you in saying that these are not good effects. Yeah, because of previous conversations we've had, where I feel like we're nostalgic for Matt in right. a way that is not objective <laughs> yeah. about how ridiculous it looks. On my first viewing, on my first rewatch, I kind of thought I don't think they're doing the good work they think they're doing. And then yeah. when I rewatch it, I thought I my literally my thought I jotted down. I think I was a little too rough. Like a lot of this looks good, it or this is, or this, interesting at least. Like it doesn't. Yeah, it looks. It, I, it I doesn't look it, bad. I'm a sucker for a matte painting. Well, matte, yeah. I think it looks beautiful, but I'm aware that that is that might simply be shaped by my age, yeah, the kinds of movies I grew up with, and my attachment to them. So I am not unaware of the counter argument of you know saying. You know, you you shit on bad CGI all the time. It's just as artificial looking as this, right? And it is, but I don't know. There's but th- an artistry these give about me, it. I have to admit that these give me the warm and fuzzies. We've talked about matte paintings before. The, yeah, a, a matte painting just gives me the warm fuzzies. It yeah. just always does. Yeah. But there, I mean, there is there's a, there's a you know there's a hand drawn artistry about it that, that I don't think CGI has. But yeah. I mean, again, that's probably a very that that is probably shaped more by my experiences uh, as a film goer than than what. Yeah, because on the 1982 true. project, you know, Matt would sit down, say for Rathacon, and like, you know, watch it with his kids, and mm. sometimes they could just see the an old Paramount Paramount logo and go, "Oh, gross!" <laughs> so so a matte painting yeah. just might not do it for them, you know. And then, then we're pretty much into one of the best sequences in the whole franchise. It's so fucking Escape good. Escape from Space Dock. Escape from Space Dock is so good. You could call this film Escape Star Trek Three: Escape from Space Dock. And I'd be happy. Say. I'd be so happy. This is where the movie. This is where the movie peaks for me. It's amazing. I mean, it. So on my first viewing, I remember like watching it and writing it, writing down. This is so fucking good, <laughs> you know. Well, it's like you know, it it's it's kind of staged as a heist, right? Like, yeah. Or, or like a prison breakout, which is great. So you have all the all that great genre stuff. Um, it's just a great sense of fun and play here. The way Kirk comes in and he mocks Bones's affliction yeah. by giving him the Vulcan <laughs> greeting and saying, "How many fingers am I holding up?" Um, and then probably George Takai's one of let's say one of two of his best moments in the series. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I might have a problem with it being martial arts if everything he did after it wasn't just wasn't so gold. utterly cool. Wasn't so great. I mean, he, you know, he... he don't call me he, tiny. Don't call me tiny. And then just the 
the the the elegance, the yes. suave. Yes, exactly. Of the way he blows up that control desk. James and, and again, James like Bond Nimoy, ain't got Nimoy nothing just, on him in that moment. Nimoy's not cutting to something else. He's what you yeah. just taking this in. We don't need to see him blow up every single switch, but this is such a good moment. Um, well, also the flair with which he's like the jacket's kind of draped on his shoulders, if I recall. Oh yeah. When he yeah. walks out the door and says, "Don't call me tiny," it's it's all so good. Yeah. And you've really got to get into that look because he doesn't change his clothes for two movies. Right, <laughs> right. Um, and then you know, as if it's as if this wasn't all great enough, Space Howard Hunter <laughs> as the captain of the Excelsior. Now, so now this is eighty four. Audiences know him as Howard Hunter from <laughs> Hill Street Blues. Right. And as far as I can tell, he's playing exactly the same, the same character, guy. but he's now the Starfleet captain. What is and he also has Miguel Ferrer. Miguel Ferrer, the, right. The, who's going to be the star and of it's the James, next generation. James what? Seeking? or James B. Seeking, yeah. Seeking, yeah. <laughs> Seeking, I'm not, I'm not sure. Um, Did you notice, and, you know, by the way? Sorry to interrupt, but... No. Do you notice where John Larroquette is in this movie? Oh, yes. He's the Klingon ambassador. No. Oh, no. No, he's the Klingon ambassador in the next movie. He's what Maltz. Is he in this one? He's what? Maltz. What's malt? What's a malt? I don't know, but that's his character name, and I. Okay. I, I realize I, I I realize after watching it twice that I didn't spot John Larroquette. <laughs> but it, this is also interesting. Like the movie's now given us three different kinds of Starfleet captain. Yeah, right. And a Starfleet admiral, mm -hmm. but we've got the kind of the the by the book. You've got the, the by the book guy, the but then you've got Hill Street. Pompous tech. Pompous yeah, exactly. And then Kirk is the rogue maverick. Yeah. Um, and it's like, I, what I love about the movie is you get a vision of all three men and you know who you want to put your lot with. You know who you yeah. whose ship you'd rather be on. Yeah. And it's the one that's most like Ronald Reagan. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Shit. <laughs> um, anyway. But also, like, George Takai has his, you know, Sulu has his standout moment and then they oh, give so one good. to Uhura yeah I mean I, listen I don't know how to speak I don't know how to speak from the perspective of an of a middle aged African American woman but right I do know <laughs> as if you needed to be told that but <laughs> you don't say I, I do know that historically African American women are tracking what Uhura does in Star Trek mm -hmm. there's the famous story of her uh, Martin Luther King convincing her to sign on for the third and final season of Star Trek. Mm -hmm. um, there's that's the story that Whoopi Goldberg tells. Yeah, about right. Being a kid going to a television saying there's a black woman on TV and she's not a maid. Yeah. I I have got to think that this scene in which Uhura is matched up with a white college kid who seems like who acts like he acts like he knows everything yes. despite her decades of experience and skill yes. has got to speak to all middle-aged black women in America <laughs> and how they are constantly that's overruled great. by these white simpletons middle-class morons yeah i mean everything you know and then she puts them in the closet and it's like i think this is i mean this has got to be a feel like a great moment this is like a Mr. Tibbs moment. It's got for... for right. For like, I mean, every time I... like middle-aged black women yeah. rather than young African-American <laughs> yes. men. Right? <laughs> every time I watch this movie and I see that scene, I always think, this 
is great. It's it, it's it, and then she you know she says this isn't reality this is fantasy which is hilarious which, which is a hilarious yes. line to say in the middle of a Star Trek film. <laughs> um, but all I mean oh God we're not even they're not even breaking out of space dock yet and this is we're this just is, about this, there but <laughs> yeah. But in the crew going rogue for Kirk, Spock, and Bones. Yeah. This is where this fifteen years of the history of playing of the show itself. Is paying off. Yeah. Like you need that. You need that history between them, and it explains everything. Mm-hmm. That is why they're doing this. Because some it, of these is... people famously don't like each other in real life, and that never oh. shows on screen. Mm, I disagree. Well, well, well <laughs> I, I, I should. I should hedge that. I, a little I bit, disagree, I? and there's a moment coming right up. You're now. right. Yeah, the moment, <laughs> and this is why it works so well. When William, when William Shatner's Kirk is is urging James Dew and Scotty to open the doors. Yeah, the doors, Mister Scott, the doors. Um, <laughs> you can feel the hatred between them, but that's what makes that moment work. Right. They look at each. They're like this. They're right next to each other and you know Chatner is shouting in his face the doors Mr. Scott the doors and he goes I I am working on it Captain (laughs) inches away from each other there's that moment and I was remembering the moment later I mean we're not there yet but when when he when he uh, they are able to get a couple of torpedoes out against Krug yeah and then the shields won't come up (laughs) he's like Mr. Scott he goes, well, yeah. I wasn't expecting to take her into battle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, horse's ass. I said I could so, get us here, but. If, and again, if you think of all that time we spent in space dock in the motion picture, we've completely inverted the, the yeah, slow the form. docking trope. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> because now, now we're leaving illegally and under attack. Mm-hmm. So the stakes could not be higher and there's also it's also time sensitive. They've got to get out yeah. before the doors. But like they've 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 got to get out as the doors open. Um, and there's that great overhead shot from from I almost said from Spock from Leonard Nimoy. <laughs> same thing. Yeah. You know where the doors open up and and we're backing up out of it. And like to me, I always get the sense of, you know how good George Takei's character is at his job in that moment. Yeah. You know? It's not like you've got a rear view mirror. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a shame in the next two movies we undo that a little bit. But, yeah. But, I, I mean, absolutely. It's it's just phenomenal. And then, you know, the punchline of... It was, they, they'd already sabotaged the Excelsior, so, <laughs> you know. and but, but Bones is there as our audience surrogate because he doesn't know... Yeah, but they've effectively they've 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 sabotaged or sabotaged um, the, <laughs> the, the the new flagship of the new the flagship Federation. of the Federation. And I again, this is an anti-science film. Yeah, <laughs> but I love I love I love the sort of mischief within it because oh yeah, you know then 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 Kirk kind of gives a wink and a smile to Bones and then he goes. You know, as fast as we can to uh, Genesis Planet, please. Thank you. Yeah. It's great. All right, why don't we uh, take another break? Yeah. Let's do it. All right, we'll take a break, everyone, and we'll come back and we'll finish up with Star Trek III, The Search for Spock. 
I like to think I know something about beer, but nowadays even I get overwhelmed when confronted by the exhaustive selection of craft beers they have at bars, breweries, and even grocery stores. Back in the day you had one, maybe two craft beers to choose from, and if you were confused, you ordered a Guinness. But in beer stations like San Diego, the craft beer options lately are in double, sometimes even triple, digits. So what's a beer drinker to do? You need what I need, the Vegas Beer Guys. Your beer of choice should be a perfect blend of malt and hops. And so a live show about beer needs that same balance. And the Vegas Beer Guys matches beer expert Dan Aker with self-proclaimed beer novice Stephen J. Weiss. The results are eminently drinkable. They're on Facebook. They're on Instagram. They'll try new beers. They'll tell you about beers. Think of them as your beer sherpas guiding you up a foamy-headed mountain to reach the peak of your pint. God, I need a beer. We're back once again, everyone. Tom and I are finishing up with Star Trek III, The Search for Spock. Leonard, Leonard Nimoy's first of two Star Trek motion picture movies. Not the motion mm -hmm. picture. <laughs> motion picture but movies. But motion picture movies. I tried watching one of those uh, non-motion picture movies. <laughs> eh, it wasn't great. It was less than good. It was lacking something. <laughs> I think movement. Some kind of A motion of some kind. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so when last we left everyone, uh, I think... Grissom was going to blow up, right? <laughs> yeah. This is this is a point at which I noted. Luckily Savick and and David are on on planet Genesis at this point looking for worms and Spock. This this felt like a little too much of a parallel with the last film. It's like didn't Right. Didn't uh <laughs> didn't another ship blow up for yeah. at pretty much the same exact time? Um It'd be difficult to differentiate one from the other, right. I think. But, um, I mean, this something that, that struck me, I think, at this point, is that this movie is a dark sequel to a dark sequel. Yeah, right. So everything gets progressively worse and bleaker for the characters. Mm -hmm. It's like downing the ante. <laughs> um, That's great. So it's kind of. I think that I think that mostly is a mostly is a weakness. It's certainly where, where Nimoy, drew the line at the end of this. It said, "We're you know we're not going to get any darker. Yeah, we're going to revert. We need to reverse the trend." Well, I mean, not necessarily because David still has to die. Oh no! I mean, at the end of the movie, before before he oh, goes okay. home. Oh no! 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 The dark shit's all got to happen. I thought you meant. I thought you meant specifically the blowing up of the Grissom. No, no. Um. And uh, we, it's revealed that D David is fucked up Genesis. Yeah. What do you think uh, of that? It's a bit of a. It contradicts the last film a little bit. Sure. Um. 
they, but they, this is also sort of, part of your anti-science. Yeah, definitely. You know? Definitely. I was almost going to um, say rant, but that would be an inf- unfair characterization, I think. Uh, not necessarily. <laughs> yeah. The, the, this idea, you know, this idea that it was all a facade. It was never going to, it was, it's impossible. It was always a fail. It was always going to be a failure. I mean, they, you know, they, they link it to Kobayashi Maru and Kirk, you know, cheating like your dad did. Right. Not believing in the no-win scenario. Uh, but, but that's not the way a man of science thinks. No, no. That's no, the problem it with it. That that is that is kind of the problem with it. Yeah. Um, so I'm not not hugely convinced by that turn of events. How do you fix that? I mean, is it like the Klingons do something that, or I'm you know what? Maybe they had the answer all along because. They kind of talk about how just having Spock there is accelerating the demise of the planet. Yeah. But what if that was it? Yeah, I know. That's, you know, that's it's, really it's, all you need. It's really all you need. Um, we get some... We, we push back... Uh, well, we're, we haven't really talked about what's going on on the planet, which is Spock mm-hmm. is growing up again. Yes. When they um, open up... He's having his own one day. Yeah, when they when they open up his torpedo tube, uh-huh. he is not there. The worms are outside of it, and then somewhere fairly close by, they find Baby Spock. Baby Spock, and they kind of do an origin story for Spock within the frame of this mm-hmm. storyline, right? Um, and we we reach back into the mythology of of the series. To an episode called "A Mock Time," where this idea of Pon Far is explored. Okay, yeah, right. Um, so that's what we're using to inform the storyline here, um, and it was meant to be part of the storyline for the next movie because Savik was supposed to have sex with him during his Pon Far, which is when, essentially, when Vulcans are fertile, like they're in heat. He was very young Literally, at that point, Tom. Kind of robbing the cradle, I say. Maybe that's why they didn't go with it. Yeah, I would say so. Maybe, maybe, maybe it spoke to the ickier side of Star Wars. <laughs> so maybe they were thinking Star Wars has incest. We'll have pedophilia. How about we'll, that? Well, I think we'll cut short for just short of that. Uh, although, like knowing that, and then seeing the the, the scene where. Um, where Savik is helping him through his Ponfar. Mm-hmm. It's very clear that was what they want. That was where they were going with the story. Yeah, right. And the, the reactions between them. Um, and there's more, you know, there's more brinkmanship between Krog, uh, Krug and Kirk. Yeah. And it's the bread and butter of the series, and it always works, but it's no Kirk and Khan. It's no Kirk and Khan, but I, you know... It can never raise to that level, but there's still a lot of good shit in there that I like. I like that Krug kind of susses out that, like, the Enterprise is probably more damaged than he's letting on. And he kind of takes a gamble and says, no, I'm not going to surrender. You surrender. I do, I do like how it's how it's like for like again. Mm-hmm. Because they're both rogue captains. Yeah, right. Kirk mentions that he's broken the peace treaty between the Federation and the Klingons. 
and don't um, you tell me about breaking treaties and you know kirk is 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 a, is a now a rogue captain so that's an interesting kind of wrinkle in there um i really like this uh, you know the the kill, killing one of the prisoners i think is a great yeah device because we have associations with each of these characters right, right? exactly like, any one of them dying is bad for the audience <laughs> is is dramatically you yeah. know it, yeah um, and I also like the way in which Christopher Lloyd's Krug's, you know, I don't care which one. Hmm. Yeah. So that, you know, I, I like that, that anticipation and the guy, you know, the, the Klingon kind of walking around them and, and of course, you know, David sacrificing himself. You love that. He's a Kirk. <laughs> you, you know, I'm a sucker for a good sacrifice. Um, and yeah, I, I I just think this must have been a a huge surprise twist for the for the film. Mm-hmm. Somehow it's not the biggest swing even in this movie, right. I would say. Right. But and even even though David has only been in one movie and as we've said before, has had limited screen time, his first of all, I, you know, I think he's he's become an established character. Yeah. But we also—it's his link to other legacy characters like Kirk, and the development of their relationship that ma- means it's—it's it's such a huge event, right? Dramatically, because we know we know how Kirk is going to react to this. Yeah. Um, and I think it again—it's just beautifully played when Kirk learns that David's dead. I was just going to ask you what you thought, and I think it's. Stunning. I think it's a really good moment. They, they you know, they focus, and I, this is the same throughout the film. They focus on one action, one gesture mm-hmm. that that tells you everything you need to know. And here, it's just he, he just falls, falls down. Off his chair. Yeah, and that's it. That's that's all you need. And um, you know, I almost I want to show that scene to people who say he's a bad actor, who's, who say that you know he's he's always over the top. Yeah. Or, He's always unrealistic because clearly, in the right directorial hands, he he really isn't. Um, I my only problem with David's death is, and I guess it's a problem you might have as well, is that he's sort of turned bad in a way. <laughs> like <laughs> before before he died, we saw that he'd you know he's he's. He's turned to... He's a much more morally ambiguous character. Right. After the revelation. Mm -hmm. Which is a little bit of a cheat because it makes it easy for us to swallow his death. Yeah. Well, but Um, it also... I kind of wish the movie hadn't played that card. Do you think... Both both because of what we discussed, but also because of how it affects our reaction to his death. Yeah. I think it is... It does feel like he's being punished for his mistakes. And I didn't really want that to be a part of it. I don't know if I always go immediately there. It, it's more like a, a redemption. But, yeah. But you also wonder, is that the choice? Yeah, I mean, he saves the other's lives. But, right. But is that the choice you know. he would have made before he met his father? Or knew that Kirk was his father? You know, those are kind of interesting questions to be able to ask. So he's got they, an arc. They, yeah. 
I just yeah no I, I, not at all I, I mean I, I like that it gives him a different dimension mm-hmm. but again, when it's followed up with his death it I I think it lets us off as an audience a little bit yeah and then the movie pulls exactly the same trick with Kirk and yeah. Kirk and Krug. Like allowing it to be self defense rather than Kirk taking revenge lets Kirk off the hook. I would say. Yeah, but at the end of that fight Yeah, no, you're right. <laughs> like, like he tried to but, he did he gave a valiant effort to trying to save his life and Krug was still being an asshole. So Kirk's the one fighting dirty. Yeah. <laughs> um, but even before that, I mean, like we the, the you know the big death of this entire movie is the death of the Enterprise. The death of the Enterprise destruct sequence one, the most crackable code in cinema Not ever. One um, <laughs> A. Uh, <laughs> zero 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 <laughs> zero. <laughs> Password. Um, one. Now, destroying the Enterprise is a huge swing, huge twist. I, you know, I what I, I also like to... about it is we talked in the last movie about, you know, Kirk being able to lower the shields on, on the other ship, and I like. I mean, they even have a, a you know, they have a line that references it, and it's appropriate for yeah. the moment because it says, "My God, what have I done, Bones?" You know. And, Mm-hmm. He says you quoting Doctor Robert Oppenheimer, right? And he says you. And of course, Genesis has already been called the Doomsday, the doomsday weapon, so weapon there's kind right? Of, there's a nuclear uh, through line, nu- a nuclear weapons through yeah. line uh, to this, which again doesn't catch science at its best. No. which I think is the point. <laughs> um, but I like you know that McCoy says you did what you had to do, what you always do. You give us a fighting chance to live, and just sort of it's the Kobayashi, Kobayashi Maru in real yeah, life. Yeah, right. Which makes it the perfect, uh, well, it's not quite the end. It's a sort of perfect set piece mm-hmm. um, for this film. Now, there are many, there are many people who will say that blowing up the Enterprise is, you know, a mistake that Star Trek can never come back from. Whereas I contend the mistake is not blowing up the Enterprise in this film, which I think is the right choice. Mm-hmm. And a good one. Yeah, it is that they never stopped blowing up enterprises after this. Right. <laughs> they became addicted to it, <laughs> and not just enterprises. Any ship that we have any attachment to is blown up in Star Trek from this point onwards. <laughs> the Defiant, the Delta Flyer, they all get blown up multiple times. <laughs> the Enterprise, I don't know how many more times the Enterprise gets blown up. Yeah, it gets uh, it so, gets remade awful quick too for a. For a for a, you know, a ship that was supposed to be put out to pasture, right. by the end of four, they're like, you know what? Uh, I know we said we were decommissioning, but we started making a new one while you guys were time traveling. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's well, exactly. How how long were they away? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> According to the film, seconds. Yes. Um, <laughs> so I, I think I think when people shit on this moment, they're thinking of what happened afterwards. In the moment, Maybe. it is absolutely... It's so, it's so good. It it makes the movie. This and Escape from Space Dark are the highlights of the movie for me. Absolutely. Um, I'm right there with you. 
I also like the scene that the scene more or less happens in real time as well. They put a clock on yeah. it. And it's over the clock, obviously, because it's a film, not real life. Mm-hmm. But it's not that much over. But like, I also, you, sort of buy you it. know, <laughs> going back to Christopher Lloyd, I love I love that he says, I'll give you two minutes for you and your gallant crew. Yeah. There's, there's some good dialogue that, you know, and and he's he's delivering it just right. And we talked about, you know, his smart choices and kind of outwitting, outsmarting Kirk in a moment. But then Kirk gets to roll, you know, he gets to reverse that immediately. You know, my note yeah. is Kirk has good ideas. He he knows how, he's a survivor. He knows how to survive. Yeah. And I love that. I think I think because his last line still... before they sorry to uh, before they energize to the planet is uh, what's he say? I'm looking forward to meeting you. Yeah. Um, the the exploding enterprise. I think I think it's the nail in the coffin of the motion picture, right? If you think about how much we fetishize the enterprise, yeah, the right. Movie, to get to the end of the third movie and then actively destroy it, <laughs> gleefully destroy yeah. it. And you know that's the film killing off its biggest legacy character, right? And not only that, they're going to do a whole movie without yep. it, which I don't think anyone ever expected, thought, right? Even at this point, um. I'm speechless. I'm speechless. I'm just. I'm just looking. I'm just looking at my notes. Um, uh, throwing the Klingon. Um, he gave his life to save us. Very New Testament. Yeah. Kind of, and we're you know we're on the Genesis planet. Uh, something I always felt. I always always felt there was something janky about this part of the film. And now now I realize that there's a potential plot hole in there. How are they going to get off the planet? Well, that's the thing is is after they exploded the enterprise. <laughs> like what was what was that? what I, I I always thought that in Kirk's head he was hoping to do what he did, which was find a communicator. That could only be his only plan. I mean, like what else is there? Right. You're going to a planet that's blowing up. <laughs> right. Unless you, you turn to Savik and say, so you have a ship, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> you got you, uh, you took a shuttle down here, didn't you? Exactly. You, did, you didn't bother with teleportation, did you? Like, I always felt there was a, there was a missing piece of the planet. Yeah. Somewhere. <laughs> but maybe you're right. Maybe it is just this incredible foresight that we used to mm-hmm. from Kirk. I, it, it's typical Star Trek, but you know, talk of of negotiations, and then yeah. you just have a fight, yeah. <laughs> and a, bu- a bunch of coincidences mean that you have a fight. <laughs> it's just that's how Star Trek rolls. We stand around talking about negotiations and treaties for a while, and then and, and then, then we battle. Fight. Yeah, <laughs> he really looks like a circus performer in that outfit. Especially when he's flying through the air, Kirk. Yes. Oh! <laughs> that yell is something. Yeah. And then we talked about the self-defense out. You know, he never becomes the avenging angel. And then and then it's kind of interesting when he gets back on... He gets on the bird of prey. Uh, and the Klingon, you know, kind of very honorably says, yes. I do not deserve to live. And he says, fine, I'll kill you later. I also have and a question. You, Is that guy still on board the ship when they go back in time? 
That would be the best post credit. That would sequence. be so good. Like the like the 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 um. He's just drowning in the ocean. Like the guy in the taxi in airplane. Yeah. So he's just sat in the bird of prey going, I'll give him 10 more minutes, but that's it. How great would it be if he popped up out of the ocean in four? Well, absolutely. I'm surprised he didn't turn up in Picard season two. <laughs> they left him in the 80s. I'm not there yet. I'm not there yet. You'd never need to be. I know. You keep saying that. Uh, it's, uh, it's a new trek is uh, misguided at best. Um. It's yeah. It's just uh, and then, so, and then he walks that back and he says, you know, I, I lied. I'm not gonna. I'm yeah. not gonna kill you. And it's just and again, it's like oh, let's pick one or the other. <laughs> you know, it's like what what I think they're being unnecessarily. I don't know. They they're sort of they're trying to have have their cake and eat it with Kurt. You think so? I mean, I always I I you know. I don't take the I'll kill you later comment very seriously. Kirk's a lot of yeah. things and he's but a he, rule but, breaker, I mean, but I I don't think of him. Just yeah. His son just died and he's in revenge mode. And I don't know if they see a future movie coming like Star Trek six, where they will deal with this more fully, mm-hmm. but they do seem to be offsetting it at this moment. Yeah, that's true. But I, he also knows that, th- you know, that this isn't the Klingon that killed his son. I always sense yeah. that I always had the sense that Kirk has a little more honor than that, which is kind of the right. relationship that you know they're setting up the, in six the, with Chang, you know these the two the old warriors. But the way the conversation goes down, no, yeah, I, I he, get what you're he's saying. He's the lying Earth colonist, yeah, and the, and this Klingon guy is the honorable one in the situation. So here's like here's my biggest thing for this movie, because mm. we talked in the last movie. That when Genesis blows up and Khan is dead, that's not yeah. the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. And the same thing happens here. When planet Genesis blows up and Krug is thrown into lava, the movie's not over. But in Star Trek II, we have this very compelling scene of Spock mm. saving the Enterprise and then talking to his friend before he dies in this movie, we've got about ten minutes of putting hands on foreheads. So I don't know. I, maybe I, that's I, less I, compelling. Well, he does it as a montage. No, He's, yeah, he you're right. Waste, doesn't doesn't waste time. He's not on wasting it. a lot of time on it. But it's, it's a pretty. I mean, it's the whole point of the movie. It is. It well. is. I can't. I can't. I can't. I can't. We've got. We've deny got that. And what I will admit to is that from the moment you actually see Leonard Nimoy. And he actually comes down the steps. He and it is so compelling that I don't give a shit anymore. But it's like a it's a sports like reveal. Yeah, right. It's like he's a boxer going into the ring. <laughs> um. Yeah. I, I. I. don't. Well, I have a problem with the fact that apparently Vulcan is just Asia. So when we <laughs> right. get to Vulcan. There's a as a there's a there's just an an Asian guy with a long mustache, in traditional, Southeast Asian garb, dress with a gong, mm-hmm. 
I was like, no, no, the Vulcans. <laughs> like, that is not Vulcan. The Vulcans and the Chinese are two different things. <laughs> right. Um, we get celebrity guest Vulcan Judith Anderson. Right. Uh, from Rebecca and uh, Laura mm-hmm. and other films that <laughs> yes. are girls' names. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, and yeah, we're, we're like we're right back in that Vulcan mysticism that the Admiral was sniffing at. Yeah, like, and it, it again, this is this sort of attempt to rewrite the 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 Vulcan going back to a mock time and that essential contradiction sure. that they that they're a, that they're a mystical people who've kind of fu- it's, and this is like in order to bring Spot back to life, they have to return to their primitive origins to do yeah. it. Yeah. Um, there's a great line from Bones in here where you know there is they they, they ask if is there any you know who is who is gonna give who's doing this or yeah back he's like a hell of a time to ask right <laughs> um and then the reveal you know the reveal of of Spock which is you know Nimoy's masterstroke because we've spent the film either hearing Spock's voice right. or half seeing yeah. his face we feel like he's been his... in the whole movie and. He doesn't arrive until there's two or three minutes left. Yeah. And then, you know, you have Spock either trying to remember who his crew are or footage of Leonard Nimoy playing an improvisational game as a director. (laughs) One of the two. And then, you know, this is the Reaganite part of the movie, right? (laughs) The needs of the one outweigh the needs of the many. Yes. Which, you know, if you depoliticize it, you could just see as a purely an imbasse, you know, where we're... And just an inverse, the right, they're just... Like we did with their, you know, they're here, they're back, we're back in Poltergeist, it's the same thing. Yeah. But, in 1984... <laughs> you read a bit more into it. I think so. Yeah. I think so. And just, you know, everything else in the The needs of the one outweigh the needs of the many. Pro-faith, anti-science agenda, it it all seems to fit. Um, So, and I I guess, (laughs) I guess the fact that this, it's not really supporting my case that I quite like the sequence. Right, right. Saying that it, it, we were ending with reciting dialogue from the last movie again. Yeah, right. So we, we, we've kind of gone, we've gone nowhere. Um, but it has, and it, it has a moment I absolutely love. And there's another one of these in Star Trek, at the end of Star Trek four as well. Essentially, you know, it's the, it's cast photo time. Right? Yeah. Right. Except, right, right. Except we're right, doing right. it on screen. Yeah. And we're going and we one by the, one. You, we get the signature eyebrow raise mm-hmm. and you watch them and oh well i guess they're both leonard nimoy directed movies so he deserves the credit but it looks like a genuinely warm moment not just between the characters but the actors as well so he's really good at filming those it looks kind of like offhand almost looks like they don't know they're on screen right right like it's just a rap party or something um and it ends with and the adventure continues once again yes. the fallacy of the accidental trilogy <laughs> you don't end a movie with and the adventure continues and then claim you accidentally we accidentally made, made a, a trilogy serial. <laughs> that's amazing uh i i i i like this movie i do too yeah this movie uh isn't as appreciate as appreciated as much as it should be no no not at all it's 
And, you know, I think even down to really small things like when they do the ritual at the end, they do a kind of low-key montage. Mm-hmm. feels like a movie that's got a very strong grip on its use of time. Yeah. Well, except for like, the bar scene. Not... Yes, true. <laughs> and I was going to say, not to the extent of the next movie. Right. Where that improves again. Mm-hmm. But you think if you think of how much how much storytelling they've done relatively efficiently yeah full of dramatic interest yeah 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 it's pretty it's it's pretty good it doesn't it it you know uh but I'll, now i'm thinking of the whales and maybe that that's not necessary right. we do take a lot of time with those whales <laughs> so maybe you know there's always a, there's always a fly in the ointment but <laughs> on the whole i think uh it makes good use of its time we'll put this whale in my ointment but it doesn't, you know, it just doesn't doesn't kind of blow you away with original storytelling right. in the same way that the other, uh, most of the other Star Trek movies do. Uh, do you have uh, anything left or, and if not, a credit check? Definitely a credit check. Uh, there's a dolly grip on this film called Tom Sawyer. <laughs> and I like to think this anticipates the time travel in the next That's film. That's amazing. There's also an episode of Next Generation called Time's Arrow where they go back in time and meet Mark Twain. Oh, so. I don't think I've seen that one. <laughs> I'd rush to it quicker than Picard Season 2, but <laughs> not as quickly as, say, something you want to watch now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> alien language created by. There's someone whose job it is to solely write wow. alien languages. Um, and then explain to Shatner how to do it. Right. Uh, there's a credit for chief engineer, which means that rank exists both in world and uh, yeah, and in the <laughs> and off screen, which I think is great. Three Johnny Mercer songs. Really? In this film, and I'm wondering, did they get a package deal by getting rights to three <laughs> by the same guy? Um. <laughs> That's uh, that's all I've had really. All right. Um, yeah, the prosthetic designs. Are, this is not funny, but I'll say it anyway. Uh, the prosthetic <laughs> designs are done by um, the Berman Studio, Rick Berman, who will do all the prosthetic designs for Star Trek going forward into the oh okay uh, the rest of the movies, TV series. That's interesting. So, You're right. It's not I funny, think... but interesting. <laughs> uh, I think I think this is. Is this the first time we've needed prosthetics mm. in the series? Like, a, a, in a creature design sense. I know we've had to do wounds and right. things before. but Yeah, maybe. Could be. All right. Well, we want to know what you think, ladies and gentlemen. Are you a fan of Star Trek Three? Where does it lie for you within the sequels? Find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Send us an email to everythingsequel at gmail.com. For Tom Stewart of Lonesome Whistle Productions, Michael Schantz here. I'm from the How Dare You Awards. When you hear us next, we're going back in time. We're going to talk about Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home. Until then, say goodbye, Tom. Up your shaft. (laughs) That's good stuff. (laughs) All right, everyone. 
Don't ride off Scotty. Not ever. <laughs> Until next time.